Well, we are back in Matthew, and I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. We are back in Matthew, but we have crested the proverbial hill, and we are rolling now as we have moved to Matthew chapter 9. And this is a text about the paralytic, paralytic being healed and is a familiar text to perhaps many of you raised in church and Sunday school. It's a dramatic healing that is demonstrative and powerful, but there's a question that is posed by Jesus that I want to kind of leap off of as I set the stage for Matthew's account of this healing, and that is when Jesus asked the question in verse 5, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? really is a question of Jesus' authority. Is Jesus the one who is equally in authority over the forgiveness of our sins and the health of our bodies? There's a lot of talk these days, if you're honest with yourselves, about health. Health is part of the malaise of the culture that we live in. It's everywhere, every restaurant, every doctor's visit. Every dental visit, every office dynamic, every gathering, every report seems to have something to do with health, with how we connect with one another these days in view of health and the threat of things. And I think we have to ask ourselves, Can a text like this one help answer for us how we are supposed to see Jesus in the midst of a culture like this today? Because this is a text that tells us the priority of Jesus' ministry and the exaltation of his authority over everything. Most of you have a life like me. It's a blur to be here and each year goes faster and faster. Each decade seems to fly with um, more velocity. I prayed earlier that I met a lady who came here this morning who is 90 years old and um, we, we had a good chat before the service and it was a reminder that even though I'm turning age 50 this year, I've got a long way to go, right? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm only halfway there. And uh, But it is an interesting number to ponder. You know, the, the four that was in front of every number that I would change uh, is now turning into a five before my eyes. And it gives you a question in your mind, you know, what am I here on earth for? What am I here to do? Why am I here? I, what is my bucket list? You know, some of you who read my blog on Surfing the Bortide, the only, the only blog that anyone has ever read that I wrote that commented back to me that they liked it was that one. And uh, that was fun to do. I'll never do that again. But that was uh, a bucket list thing. But really, you know, goals like getting married or having children or building a household, uh, those are goals that a lot of people have. Um, there are things people want to do and see in life, but what is the number one thing we want to see in life for ourselves and others? Jesus exposes for us in this text, and that is being forgiven. Forgiveness almost seems like just a 
afterthought as a Christian in the church because forgiveness is the, the entrance into the church. You are forgiven and pronounced forgiven by Christ, and that's your status. But it should be something that is very near and dear to our hearts always as a pinnacle gift in this lifetime that you possess. And you think, well, how important is it to me, really? Well, think about someone that you love most of all. Think of a child. Think of someone that you, is really dear to you. And ask yourself, what do I really want them to have before they die? And it should be the forgiveness of their sins. That's number one. That's number one. You want people to have forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is when you have a debt that you owe that is released. It's canceled. It is uh, therefore no longer owed. If you've ever owed someone money, uh, especially a significant amount of money, and that person says to you, I've canceled your debt. Your debt is forgiven. I actually had that happen to me one time. It was someone who was on their deathbed, and there was a sum of money that I still owed, and that person sent me a note, and it said, paid in full. How unforgettable is a moment like that. What about, what about where you have an unreconciled relationship or something that you think could never be reconciled, where that person suddenly softens, moves towards you, and says, will you please forgive me, or I 100% forgive you? That is a debt that's paid in full. That is a debt that is forgiven. That's unforgettable. You never forget those moments. Those are the powerful moments of life all under that banner. Here's a modernized list uh, that summarizes a lot of the biblical pictures of forgiveness. There are 75 pictures in the Bible of forgiveness, but here's a list to sort of capture them. To forgive is to turn the key, open the cell door, let the prisoner free. To forgive is to write in large letters on a cross a debt that is now not owed. To forgive is to pound the gavel in a courtroom and declare the person not guilty. To forgive is to shoot an arrow so high and so far that it can never be retrieved. To forgive is to take out the garbage and dispose of it, leaving the house fresh and clean. To forgive is to loose the anchor and to set the ship free to sail. Here's a few more. To forgive is to grant a full pardon to a condemned and sentenced criminal. To forgive is to loosen a stranglehold on a wrestling opponent. To forgive is to sandblast a wall of graffiti, leaving it looking brand new. To forgive is to smash a clay pot into a thousand pieces so it can never be put together again. It's forgiveness. Forgiveness. I remember a few, several years ago now, like a decade ago, I went down to Southern California and reunited with a friendship that I'd had that was about a 20-year-old friendship. And he was a um, high school teacher, he still is, basketball coach, um, successful, all-American, sort of Californian family. But we, we knew each other way back. And so he, between classes, got a burrito with me, and we sat and talked and reunited and had a great time. And afterwards, I said, walking in the parking lot, every time we get together, it's as if no time has passed at all. We just pick right up, and we have that kind of friendship. And he paused, and he looked at me, and I've told you this before, but the story before, but he looked at me, and he said, you know, Jeff, do you remember that time that it was right after college, and I was really in a desperate way and was dealing with some anxiety and some fear 
I was going to get married and I was terrified and I was sinking and, and you met with me and went through a book with me called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts by Jerry Bridges. And I said, yeah, I remember that. He said, Jeff, I just want you to know that that study with you, it saved me. He said, you saved me. He said it a couple times and it stunned me to think of the implications of what he meant by that. But then, after he had grabbed my attention and I was left breathless, he said, Jeff, when you go back to Anchorage, preach grace. Preach grace. Preach the gospel of grace. Preach forgiveness of sins to people. So that's what I want to do this morning. There's nothing greater than grace. Let me ask this question. If people could choose, make the choice between full health and full grace, what do you think people would choose? I mean, our culture, 99% of the time would say, I want health. I want my health. I want to be physically whole. This bothers me in this life. And they do it to the ignorance of grace that's offered often. Even in the church, people who are forgiven, you have forgiven status. A lot of times we forget about that and we deny ourselves the joy of being forgiven by worrying about our health. I'm not saying health is, health is not cheap. Health is important. It's important to protect our health. But most of all, what we should prize and value is forgiveness. Listen as I read this section of Matthew 9, 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. People put such a premium on health that they forget the prize of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the great prize. It is the pearl of great price, the pinnacle gift. It's the access code to everything. There's nothing wrong with being healthy. I like being healthy. I thank the Lord for health. But when it becomes central to your life, to the expense of worshiping God and seeing that God is sovereign over your health or over your suffering, you miss everything. You miss the joy of his lordship. Without forgiveness, we are lost. We're hopeless. We're guilty. We're shameful. We're going to hell instead of heaven. Sin is the barrier that is the wall between our relationship with the Lord. And when that's broken, suddenly we really have access to everything because God will not withhold any good thing to those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84, 11. Having our sin, is, sin solved is everything. And Jesus makes this point at the very beginning of this encounter with a paralytic. 
Remember, Jesus is in Capernaum, which is a northwest sea village. It's the largest sea town on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was Jesus' new home, as we're going to see. He was raised in Nazareth, but then relocated for ministry in Capernaum. He was there. He healed a leper, and the leper exposed that he had been healed to everyone, counter to Jesus's hush order for him not to do that. He did that, told everyone, and so the crowds were coming for Jesus to do, to do the same for them. Health was on the minds of the people. Imagine that. People, instead of distancing themselves, were crowding together around Jesus for health. They were doing anything that they could to be whole, to have something fixed, to have something solved by Jesus. And that's not all a bad thing or a wrong thing, but it was the priority of people's thinking. And we see this. Jesus has healed the centurion slave. He healed um, Peter's mother-in-law and then is located in Peter's house in Capernaum. This was home base for Jesus. And everybody's knocking at the door. And it says in the gospel accounts that the whole city was there. Everybody was there pushing in for healing. And Jesus didn't turn anyone away. He healed everyone all night long to the point of his own exhaustion to the point where the disciples are pictured as lifting him into the boat. He's like, let's go. Let's go to the other side, away from the cities here on the west side, down to the east side. And six miles across, they were crossing. The storm um, hit and was um, threatening the lives of the disciples. Everybody was breaking apart. They were doubting the Lord Jesus, accusing Jesus. Jesus calms the storm, shows he is Lord over creation, They go to the other side thinking there's going to be a respite. They hike in to Gersa, that little town six miles in, and they're met by two demoniacs out of the cave tombs and one demoniac with a legion of demons where Jesus cast them all out, showing he is Lord over demons. He is compassionate on two people to save them spiritually, clothe them in their right mind, make them right with God, and separate them from demonic influence, what we've been talking about for a couple weeks He goes back then over, back to Capernaum, and that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 9. Look at verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. This is now a city that he is claiming for himself. It's been a little time. It's been some time that's passed, and Jesus is back. And as he is back, everybody knows it, and they're all wanting to get to him. He's at Peter's house. Mark one thirty three speaks of that being the location where there was the first healing encounter all night long, and then he's back, and Mark 2, verse 1 says he was at home, which probably locates him back at this very house, and this house was crammed. Maybe not as many people as before, but it was crammed so much so that it was all the way to the door, and no one could get inside. Mark 2, 2 says many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So what's Jesus doing at this point? He's preaching the word. The text says in Mark 2, 2, he was preaching the word to them. He was preaching. He was teaching. They had come for healing. But now Jesus, who's been away, has an audience with them where he's probably saying, if I'm going to transition to healing, let's give you the word of God first. I want to address your soul before I address your body. I want to address your sin need before I address your physical need. This is always the prioritization of what's on Jesus's mind. It's always that way. 
it's that way even today. The crowd was hearing the word of God, and at this point, Jesus is preaching grace to them. But it wouldn't be long where Matthew 11, verse 20 says that Jesus is rebuking Capernaum with a scathing denunciation because their faith was suspect. Look at verse 23 of Matthew 11. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. All that was going on in Sodom, all of the sin, all of the judgment from sin that would be given to Sodom is far less than the judgment for Capernaum because Capernaum was exposed to the the Lord Jesus, to his miracles, to his messiahship. Into the preaching of the word. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. It's dangerous to hear the word of God. It's dangerous to hear the word with clarity if you reject it. So boys, girls, listen to that. It's dangerous to be in Christian school. It's dangerous to be in a Christian homeschool environment. It's dangerous to hear the Bible because to reject Jesus when you see Jesus for who he is is a hardening effect. And Capernaum was right at that crossroads, and hopefully those in the household there crammed in, were crammed in by God's providential saving care to hear Jesus preach to them. And preaching was what he was doing, preaching grace. But there were other people who were there known as the scribes. Scribes are there. There's also teachers there, as Luke accounts for. Luke 5.17 says there were visiting Pharisees. They were there to judge Jesus. They, it specifically says in the other gospel accounts, they were seated there, which is a posture of judgment in this case. They were judging Jesus, wanting to catch Jesus up short. But there at the same time were four men who wanted to bring a paralytic man, a man paralyzed to Jesus for help. And we see this in Verse 2, and behold, some people, these are the four men, as designated in Mark's account, Luke's account, brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Lying on a bed. What level of paralysis was this man in? Well, we don't know, but the original language kind of alludes to the fact that he was dead weight. He couldn't help himself. He needed to be carried. I don't know that any of the texts say that these men actually were friends of this man, but you just kind of assume that because of the effort that they're putting in to get their companion, their colleague, somebody that they know to Jesus. They couldn't get in through the front door. Everything was crowded and jammed. You've heard all of this through um, Bible stories, Vacation Bible School, VBS, Awana Ministry, Backyard Bible Club, Flannel Graph. I don't know how you've heard this, but you've probably heard this story. Who's heard this story before? Right, everyone. But at the same time, maybe not everyone. Okay, anyway. But at the same time, there's more here that meets the eye. They're struggling. They're trying to get in. And ultimately, they go up the side stairs to the flat-topped roof. You can see the Bible picture in your own mind, right? And they're up there. And probably looking around, they find some fishing gear, some ropes and things laying around. Maybe Peter's own gear that they jerry-rigged the pallet where this man was on. And they... They, they're up on this tiled roof, and so they're, they're kicking the tiles around and moving the thatch, thatch work around, and they're going between the horizontal beams that would have supported the roof, and they're lowering this man down right in front of Jesus. It's an amazing scene. It's equally interesting to me that there's no 
sense of distraction from Jesus. He's preaching, but suddenly this is a great opportunity for him to minister to someone's need. He sees this as part of the providential hand of God. He's probably preaching on forgiveness. And he says, you know, as an illustration that's coming down right now, I'm going to use this to talk about the gospel in relation to this man. A lot of times in Bible stories, um, Sunday school teachers will errantly say that the point of the story is the faith of these four men. They were awesome. Look at all that they did. Their creativity to get this man to Jesus. They had such a passion for Jesus that no doubt Jesus felt compelled and moved by their efforts to pronounce forgiveness upon their friend. That absolutely misses the point of the passage completely. In fact, even though the text says that he saw verse 2, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He did see the group's faith. And he is pronouncing some kind of... Um, there, it, Matthew is accounting for some kind of blessing on these men. They were doing things by faith. Hopefully it wasn't a false faith or a... You know, as James 2 talks about, even the demons believe and shudder. Or the faith of John 2, that where people were express, expressing faith in Jesus because of the miracles. But Jesus kept his heart far from them. He distanced himself from them because their faith was superficial. We don't know where these men really were. My assumption is that they were believers and they were doing this by the, the, the faith that they genuinely had. But Jesus moves from their faith to talk specifically to the faith of the paralytic. Do you see? He moves from what he sees in them to what he sees in him. It's as if Jesus and the paralytic are the only two people in the room because Jesus is speaking to him. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, my technon, which is my child... Saying, we have a relationship, take heart. Because your sins are forgiven. What does that mean? Well, it's, a, it's actually a past present use of are forgiven. It actually should be interpreted, take heart, my son, your sins have been forgiven. That's a very important distinction to see. The man that was being lowered down was already a Christian. He was already born again. Jesus was not saving him in that moment, he was saying that he knows this man is already saved. Why does he do that? Well, he does it for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you were someone who, who had uh, a palsy or you were paralyzed or born that way or that happened to you, people would act like Job's counselors in a Jewish culture and basically say, that's because you have unconfessed sin in your life. Something went wrong. Something's still going wrong, and that's why you're in the condition that you're in. And Jesus is diffusing that entirely. In fact, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's saying, take heart. You're discouraged. Be heartened. Be strengthened in your heart. Something's wrong with you physically, but everything is right with you spiritually. Get that. Take heart. Health is not the issue in this moment. First and foremost, take heart. Because your sins have been forgiven. You're in a state of grace. Everybody else in the room might be lost, but you are found. You're my son. 
That is the amazing grace of this moment. That is the point that Matthew is making. What's amazing is that no one at this point, not the scribes, not the teachers, not the Pharisees, are offended by healing. Jesus, I mean, they will be later, but Jesus healing people was just fine. I mean, they were out to judge Jesus and they were scrutinizing what he was saying at this point, but they weren't offended by healing. And point one, if you're taking an outline down for how to frame this, is um, taken out of verse 5, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. What we have is two things. We have forgiveness and we have healing. And point one is Jesus is displaying forgiveness. Forgiveness. Nobody's offended by the healing. Nobody's offended by what Jesus could do. Everybody knew, in fact, that Jesus could heal the paralytic because Jesus had healed paralytics before. Matthew 4's account talks about Jesus was healing paralytics. That was just something he was known for being able to do. And so this paralyzed man in the mind of the friends, the four, or in the minds of the people, this man was going to be healed. They were expecting a miracle. What they were not expecting was for Jesus to pause, to step back, and not heal, but to say, your heart has already been healed. And that's amazing. Your sins have been forgiven. That's incredible. When you see someone who's infirmed, someone who, who, who has had something happen to them in this life, someone in a wheelchair, someone in whatever circumstance or situation, when their sins have been forgiven, isn't that an amazing testimony? When you see joy in the face of someone who's infirmed, your sins have been forgiven. That's what he's saying. Healing didn't upset anyone. But that pronouncement upsetted the religious people. The religious people. Look what happened in verse 3. I want to show you that forgiving someone did offend these religious leaders. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. And then look at verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? What's happening is the scribes are very coward, in a very cowardly way, are musing within themselves. They're talking to themselves. They're whispering something that we ought not ever whisper. They're saying things in their own hearts against Jesus. They're going, for Jesus to pronounce that this man's sins have been forgiven is blasphemy because only God could make that pronouncement. That's why they're upset. It's logic. It's theological. Well, God is the one who pronounces forgiveness upon people. God is the one who can see into hearts and know a person's spiritual state. And so he's saying he's God, and that's blasphemy. Other texts um, say it as well. What they were doing in their hearts. They were against Jesus 100%. In Matthew chapter 9, um, verse, verses 3 and 4, this man is blaspheming. Mark 2, 6 through 8. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why, did this, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Listen to what, they, what Mark says. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, immediately perceiving in his spirit that they were questioned within themselves, 
Then he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? The issue here is that they were offended by Jesus claiming to be someone who was in an authoritative position over someone else's sins. Why would that upset the scribes and Pharisees and teachers? One reason. It unseated their authority. Let's make it more practical. It threatened their control. When someone's control or power is threatened, you'll see some anger. You'll see some vitriol. The pronouncement that Jesus made on the outside, which was a pronouncement of grace regarding the paralytic's heart on the inside, was incredibly threatening to what the Pharisees and scribes were saying on the inside, which was causing them to just boil with anger and vitriol, saying he's blaspheming, he's crossed the line. Why are they upset? They're upset because they did not want their power to be unseated from them. They didn't want to be unseated from their power, period. That's why people get upset in our culture today about the sickness dynamics and things. I mean, we want to be careful. We don't want to get anybody sick. We want to be righteous Christians. We want to have good testimonies. We don't want to get into the uh, warfare of the haves and the have-nots and the I did this and I didn't do that and all of those different debates that are going on. We need to discern the issue beneath the issue is people's power and authority is really what's at stake in these arguments. People are always threatened by their own um, sense of entitlement and that being stripped from them. Let's see through that. What we need to see is the priority of forgiveness. The priority of forgiveness. That's what's here. This is highlighted here. Number one, when Jesus makes this pronouncement, he's saying it was not sin that caused this man to be um, paralyzed. Number two, what Jesus is highlighting is that the priority is not his health, but him being forgiven. Forgiveness is the priority in everything. J.C. Ryle put it this way. Who can doubt that to the end of his days, this man would thank God for this palsy. Without it, he might probably have lived and died in ignorance and never seen Christ at all. Without it, he might have kept his sheep on the green hills of Galilee all his life long and never been brought to Christ This is what speaking truth does. If you speak truth in a culture that Jesus is the authority, people will be offended. Now, catch what I'm saying. I'm not saying we vault ourselves and put ourselves up as the authority and say, we've got the corner on the truth. We understand everything. We know all the whys and wherefores of everything. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over all. He's Lord over our lives. Wherever you fall out on what you should do and how you navigate a culture that's in a polarizing debate, Jesus is Lord. You can't go wrong with bowing your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what they were threatened by. Jesus had pronounced that this man was forgiven. It would be one thing for him to say, God has forgiven this man. Jesus is saying, This man's sins have been forgiven him, and it was based on the word of Christ. 
When we speak for Christ, we expose what's on the inside. When we say that Jesus is the only way, he's in control of our eternal destiny, our path to heaven. We are, we are creating a crisis in people's hearts if they don't believe he's Lord. When you say Jesus is Lord, it makes people squirm underneath his lordship. So that's what Jesus is doing here. These Pharisees would have none of it. These legalists would have none of it. And Jesus knew their hearts. And he said, why do you think, verse 4, evil in your hearts? This is evil. And what he brings out here is that they were mad at Jesus who could forgive. And ultimately, they were mad because they felt that their authority was threatened. And so what he's going to do is put on par his pronouncement of forgiveness with healing. And that's point two. Point one, verses one through four, is forgiveness. The whole issue of forgiveness. Point two is Jesus proving his authority through healing this man. Jesus had the authority to forgive because Jesus can heal. They go hand in hand. Look at verse five. It says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? He's targeting everything with a rhetorical question. He wants you to ask in your own heart this question, not to answer it out loud. Sometimes when you pose a rhetorical question, someone will answer out loud. He's saying, which is easier? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. Which is easier? Which is it? He's not pitting one miracle against another, saying rise and walk and having someone overcome this kind of palsy and paralysis is amazing. And a conversion of a heart from dead to alive is amazing. What he's doing is he's balancing the scales by saying both are equally powerful and both are under the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. He's saying which is more powerful and the answer is neither. To say your sins are forgiven is as powerful as saying rise and walk. And both come with the tremendous cost of Jesus' sacrifice. Think about that. When Jesus died on the cross, he answered the fall and the curse of sin, which is why people sometimes are paralyzed in this world. When Jesus died on the cross, he answered also the penalty of our sins, which is why people can be forgiven from their sins and go to heaven. Both are on the balancing scale here in his question for Jesus to say, which is more powerful, which is easier. Well, Jesus is saying both. They're both equally under his authority. And you see in verse six, it says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He says, rise, is the authority to heal here, which is proving that he is the source of forgiveness. He's both healer and forgiver. He is bringing a resolution to this question. Is he proving that he can heal? No, he's already proven that. Is he proving that he can forgive sins? Yes, all sin, all guilt, all fear, and all punishment. Look, people get very wrapped up in their health. And it's not wrong to enjoy good health. It's not wrong to be concerned about the health of others. 
but it's wrong to make health the center of your life. The morbid focus of everything, every news soundbite, every article that you read, every concern that you have, you should analyze it and measure it. How much am I thinking about health in relation to how much am I thinking about Jesus and thinking about souls, thinking about forgiveness, thinking about life? It's an incredible measuring um, stick that you need to put over your own heart and your mind. Are your scales balanced? Yes, Jesus can heal, but yes, Jesus can and does forgive. And forgiveness is the ultimate priority. Either believe Jesus is sufficient for your life, no matter if you're healthy or not, or you don't. He's either enough or he's not. But he always forgives and he will always heal you one day in this life or the life to come. What happened to the man? Well, a matter of fact, it says in verse 7, he rose and went home. He just got up and left. It's almost like it was a non-event. He was laying there, paralyzed, unable to move. Jesus says, look, I've already pronounced his forgiveness of sins. That's the point. But to prove that I have authority to do that and say that, Rise and walk. The guy gets up, grabs his bed, and leaves. People probably in the room went like this. I mean, it was a crowded room. Just, just, okay. (laughs) All right. Well, I guess that point was made. And what, what did they do? When they saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. They were stunned. This Verse does not mean that everybody became converted as a Christian. It's left intentionally vague. What it means is that they saw what had happened and they saw that Jesus genuinely made his point. Power had come from God in this moment through this man and something amazing happened. And it's terrifying. Just like the disciples in the boat when he calmed the storm. This is terrifying. It's just amazing. Other Luke and Mark, they say... They were amazed. They were astounded. They were in awe of what had happened. It was no doubt that God's power had come. And they were giving glory to God. They were giving credit to God. But I don't know if that's conversion. Nebuchadnezzar also gave credit to God when Daniel was spared from the lions, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were spared from the fire. He gave pronouncements upward to the God of Israel. I'm not sure that that is conversion either. People do that. But Jesus was validating who he said he was. He was vindicating who he said he was. Christ's power was on display. The one who calls himself son of man can do that. Jesus used a humble term, always calling himself the son of man, which is also connected to Daniel chapter 7, which is a reference to Jesus who is coming as Messiah in the clouds in full humanity, but is exalted as deity, saying, I'm the son of man. And he said that so that people would be prompted to believe on him by faith and not by his fame, by his person and not by his power, by who he said he was, not who they thought he was. It's one thing to believe Jesus is a miracle worker. It's not one thing to know a whole lot about Jesus. It's one thing to be able to answer Bible questions in your Bible homework about Jesus. But you can know Jesus up here in your head, but not believe in Jesus All the way in your heart. And Jesus is calling and drawing all of you to fully believe, to fully embrace Jesus Christ as Lord over all, as the sufficient Savior and Lord of your life. To be forgiven. 
to be forgiven by the Son of Man. The Son of Man can raise people from death so the Son of Man can forgive you of the bad thing that you've done that you can't find any solution or way out of in your own conscience. Jesus can forgive that. Your sins have been forgiven. That's what you want. You want to be lowered down in Jesus' presence in whatever physical state that you're in. You're being lowered down in that moment. You're on that pallet. Your friends are getting you to Jesus. And all you want is for Jesus to say that. Not rise and walk. You want him to say, take heart. Your sins have been forgiven. That offends people. But who cares? We have Christ. We have Christ. It's all that we have. He made full connection that he was God and he was in the seat of power and with full authority over everything. Well, in conclusion, if you just take Jesus as a miracle worker, you're falling short in saving faith. You have to see that forgiveness is everything. I talked to two uh, Christian friends. They don't go here to church, but we were talking yesterday in my backyard and they were talking about working with liberals versus working with conservatives. This is the, you know, the macro categories of our culture, right? Liberals and conservatives, liberals, conservatives. Nowadays, you have, you know, subdivisions within conservatives and subdivisions within liberals. So there's all kinds of gradations there. But a lot of people worry about having to work as a conservative with a liberal or a liberal having to work with a conservative or, you know, where you live and, and how, you, how you endure life from day to day. But let me give you two new categories to think about. These are Jesus's two categories, the forgiven and the unforgiven, the saved and the lost, the regenerate and someone who is left darkened in their understanding. Start there. Start there. I'm not saying that I'm blind to the, the dramatic implications of liberalism or being a conservative. I, I understand that. But I just want to boil it down biblically and say that the most important priority to life is being forgiven. And the most valuable thing that you want for someone else is for them to be forgiven. Their sins are forgiven. When people prioritize forgiveness over prioritizing self, when they prioritize Christ over their own comfort, then they're a child of God. When people do not, they might think that they know grace, but in fact, they are denying themselves the grace of Christ. We can't live for our health. The only thing that separates us from the Lord is our sin. We live for grace. My friend, remember at the beginning of the sermon, he said, preach grace. Do you have grace? Have you been saved? Are you offended that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven? That's not blasphemy. That's grace. That's truth. He's the Lord. He can break the barrier of your sin if you'll let him.